and welcome to Bread and Rosaries, still, to our knowledge, the undisputed champion of British Christian leftist podcasts. I'm Ben Molyneux-Headington, and I'm joined, as always, by Adam Spears. Adam, is it good to be the champion? Uh, It's the first time I've experienced being a champion of anything, so I I guess it remains to be seen. Uh, I was a champion of one thing one time at school. My uh, school rugby team managed to uh, win the local league, which enjoyably <laughs> was populated entirely by um, public schools, um, apart from us. So although we're quite a posh school, as you can probably tell from my accent, we weren't as posh as everyone else there. So therefore, you are the def- default you have to be cheered for. Well, yeah, and obviously in this case, default is important because the reason we won is that uh, they played a 20-year-old in one of the ga- in the final. And although we got absolutely spanked by them, they then forfeited because <laughs> they uh, played a 20-year-old. I think that's fair. I just, had a th- I just had a thought, actually. I did win one thing once. My church youth group had, like... You know those wrestling suits you can get? They're like really big. Oh like, yeah, I've done yeah, loads yeah. of those with the youth centres and stuff. I yeah, am yeah, so yeah. I'm so good at them. So we had a yeah. Well, so it's something about being a a, a basically a, a fat guy, right? <laughs> isn't it? You know. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Where I absolutely cleaned up. Um, so I won that, which you know does take it does take more than just being fat to be fair. So yeah, you have to be tall as well, um... <laughs> which I am not. So. I mean, you're not short, but yeah. Uh, on my stag do, we did like bubble football, and they were like, "Okay, the stag challenge thing is that you like basically you stand on the halfway line in your in your in your bubble, and um, everyone gets a turn to run straight at you and smash into you as hard as possible. And obviously, the idea is the stag then just get bashed around a fair amount. Except, and I'm aware that it's a podcast, people can't see me, but I am to use a technical term, fucking massive. So uh, <laughs> literally every single person that was on my stag do just boing, bounce straight off me. Yeah, well, um, all I've got to say about that, mate, is uh, thanks for the invite. Appreciate it. You were, in fact, invited. Yeah, no, I, I, I record, figured I probably was. I just you forgot. You were one of the... <laughs> I can't remember if you couldn't make it or if you, you couldn't... I think you, I think you couldn't afford it. Um which yeah, it's a st- standard thing for me is that yeah. I can't afford it. It's like yeah, I'd love. Well, to be this is there, what but... I'm saying. I was like, I think you can't afford it, but then I might have just assumed that was the case because it was you. Um, <laughs> That's fair. But much like my rugby team, we are of course the undisputed champion uh, by default because I don't know of any other British Christian leftist podcasts. Uh, at least none of them, none that are explicitly all three of those. But again, if you are that, shout. We'd, we'd love to like find out that there are people doing a better job of this yeah yeah for sure i mean there there are definitely british christian podcasts that like have lefty hosts but it's whether they're like explicitly that i think i think we're the only ones i know of yes yes uh, same here we are also only champions because there's no one else about and we definitely wouldn't be because other podcasts do things like uh, release episodes when they're going to say they're going to. Uh, we are. Uh, we missed our last recording session, which is my bad. It is your bad, but then also like we could have re-recorded, but then you got COVID and I got offsteaded. I'm not <laughs> sure which one of us has done worse. I'd, out of I'd, that. I'd, I'd take, take the I'd take the COVID to be honest, mate. Yeah, I did consider faking a test when I heard. <laughs> Suddenly, I feel very ill. I have to go home. Um, so yeah, we missed last time out, but. Uh, we're going to crack in this time out with what we were going to talk about last time, which is strikes. Obviously, at the time we were going to talk about that, it was very timely because the RMT were in the midst of some strikes. But thankfully, due to the general crappiness of uh, British life and the current government, strikes seem to be an ever-present threat at the minute. So we are still at least somewhat timely. But having mentioned our glorious government we should crack straight into what else is on my mind grapes what else is on my mind grapes and on everyone's mind grapes is of course the sad departure of our beloved prime minister boris johnson adam how are you coping with the loss well heartbroken really i'd always kind of harbored a a, a hope that in some way i would play a role in his downfall um, such as my hatred for him but it's that that has been taken from me. Yeah, it is gutting not to be involved in his demise. But um, yeah, we spoke last time a bit about how we're not going to be that sad about his demise and stuff. Um, so yeah, I don't really want to dwell on Boris. Uh, see you later. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. Um, but what we have is a Tory leadership election. Hooray! And guess what? It's already 
super right wing. Uh, this is a problem, of course, with the Tory leadership elections, is that the electorate for it is first the other MPs of the Tory party, uh, but then the Tory party membership. Um, and if you think Tory party MPs are bad, the Tory party membership are even more rabidly right wing than the MPs. So what we get is a contest of who can be the most reactionary in public. Yeah, yeah. And, act- and actually, I mean, it really is uh, to the point where a lot of Tories, even in the parliamentary Conservative Party, are kind of realising now what kind of what they've done, you know, what they've ended up with. Because, I mean, we have leadership candidates now, probably a majority of them, who are saying things that are to the right of Nigel Farage when he was leader of UKIP, right? All this anti-trans stuff, you know, that is, that's relatively new. All this anti-woke stuff, you know. Um, yeah, of course, Nigel Farage isn't going to miss an opportunity to to have a go at that as well. But that wasn't really what they, they were on about. Um, the Tory party has now become more right-wing than the party that we all thought were fascists um, a few years ago. Yeah, this is obviously, you know, it's an undoing of Cameronism in a way, because Cameron's theory was you could essentially keep the right-wing economics, the hardcore neoliberalism, the austerity that we all know about if you hugged a few hoodies, maybe pets and dogs, and, uh, yeah, generally toned down the uh, hardcore far-right or right-wing social policy. Um, and even Johnson... Uh, Johnson always walked this tightrope to me of... He, he kind of played the Jeremy Clarkson card a little bit, of, like, never saying anything with enough seriousness for it to seem genuinely like he was proposing right-wing social policy so much as just being like, well, I'm having a laugh, I'm just joking about it. Um, obviously, he had plenty of right-wing social policies, but he maybe didn't, I don't know, have the seriousness about it. Um, obviously, some of the stuff, I mean, the anti-trans stuff is particularly prominent. Uh, of the roughly 2,000 people who are currently running for the Tory leadership election, uh, literally only Grant Shapps uh, has given a halfway decent answer on trans issues, which is just uh, let them live their lives, which, uh, you know, isn't enough by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a hell of a lot better than what anyone else is saying. Well, look at look, look at Penny, Penny Mordaunt, right? Who, who, was, who was thought to be good on this stuff until her own party members started crowing about how, you know, she was pro-trans rights. And then she just, reverse she just flip-flopped on it and and i think that's the thing is that someone like penny mordaunt is there's no integrity there right i mean we say that of boris johnson and you know because that's the most obvious um you know there really is no integrity there his ideology is boris johnson but it's the same for people like penny mordaunt they just want power and i think the the other thing i'd say as well even david cameron you know, wasn't averse to going and using culture war issues or trying to get people angry about things that that really don't actually matter. You know, he he said, and I quote: "For too long, we've been passively toler- a passively tolerant society, saying to our citizens, as long as you obey the law, we will leave you alone." Right? And what, what's he getting at there? Right? This is David Cameron, who who's meant to be, as you say, all hug a hoodie and so on. Right. They will say what they want to say because it it sounds good at the time or it sounds like something that's going to help them at the time. They're politicians. That's what they do. Yeah, absolutely. And um, in some ways, of course, they're doing exactly the same thing that Keir Starmer did, which is uh, pandering to the electoral base that is going to elect them a leader. So as Starmer pretended to be a, a socialist in a suit, uh, the Tory leadership elections are intended to be uh, mini-Trump, anti-woke crusaders. Mm-hmm. Whether they will be once they actually win this election is an open question, but the process itself shifts everything to the right, and um, it creates a hostile environment. And I think the thing I'm particularly thinking with Cameron, the reversing of the Cameron approach is that 
you know, Cameron passed gay marriage. Was he a particularly committed defender of gay rights? No, but he recognised that some sort of sop to the queer community was going to help him and uh, gay marriage, which is a relatively, you know, it's not a radical approach to to queer justice, um, was one of the easiest ways to win favour for doing that sort of thing. What you're seeing now is the anti-trans stuff is obviously the first step in a broader anti-LGBTQ plus agenda that is going to continue. And you've also obviously got a bunch of candidates who are in support of the Rwanda plan um, and also, uh, you know, the wanting to scrap Human Rights Act, all this sort of stuff. And some of this stuff might disappear off the agenda once they... Um, once they win the leadership because they think it might not appeal to the public at large. But the fact it's being mainstreamed and, you know, becoming a key topic of debate in our news media is extremely dangerous nonetheless. Something that uh, jumped to my attention and you might well have seen doing the rounds on uh, the various social media platforms is about uh, Sajid Javid. He was one of the two big uh, resignations that kind of started this whole hoopla, him and Rishi Sunak. Um, he was health secretary, Shazid Javid, so a fairly big role, and he resigned shortly followed by Sunak. And he did an interview where he spoke about uh, his motivation. So this is the BBC. Sajid Javid says he first thought about leaving the cabinet a week ago. What resolved him to quit was hearing a sermon on integrity at a prayer breakfast in the Parliament on Tuesday. He had previously given Mr Johnson the benefit of doubt, he said... This is a direct quote from Javid. It might sound a bit strange, but I was listening to the sermon by this amazing man, Reverend Les Isaac. You know, he started Street Pastors. I was just listening to him talking about the importance of integrity in public life and just focusing on that. I made up my mind. I went straight back to my office and drafted the resignation letter and went to see the Prime Minister later in the day. A lot of people have been crowing about this on Christian social media. And I only have one question to them, which is, would you like to buy a bridge? I cannot believe anyone is falling for anything this transparent. That is such an obvious attempt to pander to a certain sort of uh, Christian who might be a member of the Tory party and voting in the upcoming election. Um, whether or not the story is even true, I personally have my doubts. But even if we take him at his word, uh, the fact that... It took him that long to work out that maybe Boris Johnson wasn't a good dude. Probably says more about the failing of the previous prayer breakfast preachers than the particular event this time. Yeah, I think the the thing that I think about when I when I see things like the national prayer breakfast happening, it's a, it's the same thing that I think about when I see any sort of Christian, like parliamentary Christian event going on, because it's always this cross party kind of thing where there's sort of this inbuilt assumption that everyone is there for good reasons everyone is you know has the best integrity um about them no matter what party they're an mp for no matter what their voting record is because they are christians they are therefore good people and because they are mps they are therefore good people um, and I think that's a, a way that Christianity is often instrumentalized to uphold the status quo. So anytime I see this kind of thing, a national prayer breakfast or Christians in Parliament, anything like that, all it makes me think is, here's a bunch of Christians, some of whom should know better, um, basically using Christianity to keep something in place that is, I would say, something that is pretty directly contrary to any sense of christianity that that stems from jesus does that make sense yeah yeah absolutely and i think you know there was an article i was in the guardian maybe something else but a little while back it was basically like here are all the parliamentarians from different parties that are mates and there's there's one that stuck out which was um jess phillips the um, awful Labour MP who was Bezzy M's with uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, Jess Phillips is a certain sort of performative white feminist that, you know, I, I think we could critique for some time, but certainly claims to have some sort of women-focused, you know, I want to be 
a female MP who represents women and, you know, you know, comes from a feminist perspective. And, you know, here she is with, um, a rank misogynist who gets away with it a lot of the time because he has a plumby accent and sounds a bit funny, panning around with him. And this just seems like the Christian version of that. Actually, you should be in conflict. You don't have to throw punches at people on the opposite bench, although, honest to God, I don't know how people don't. But, uh, you know, actually being friends with people is, you know, is that the highest goal you've got? I mean, these people are responsible for, for... Kids dying mm. for you know for rampant food bank usage for yeah all sorts of horrible things. Why is it the most important thing to be mates with them to be civil to them? Like sometimes it is necessary for uh, tactical reasons to be civil to people. I certainly don't think there's any value in going around just constantly being rude to these people because you might uh, have to tactically utilize them at some point, but. You don't have to be mates. You don't have to be, you know, panning around with these people. And, you know, particularly when we've seen, you know, the Pestminster scandal, you know, actually some of the culture around MPs hanging out and drinking and all that stuff is actually extremely bad. So a bit of conflict, not being pals, is probably exactly what's needed. And I think, yeah, what we see in things like the, the Christians in Parliament, Christian prayer breakfast stuff is one of the, um, less, pleasant aspects of political Christianity in this country, which is uh, essentially making being nice the highest goal. You know, Christianising the concept of being pally with everyone rather than Christianising the concept of doing justice. Yeah, and I think there's clearly a difference between being friends with someone who votes Tory, who, you know, is just your average person with an average job right and someone who is an an actual sitting not just a sitting mp but in the case of jacob reese mogg you know in in the cabinet right these are the people who are actually making this stuff happen and you know i do find it hard sometimes if i know someone who you know i know that they're a tory voter and i know what they voted for sometimes i can find it somewhat difficult to square that in in my head um but i do think it's important to say that there's a clear difference between those those two things if i have a friend who's who i know is a tory um a a, a part of what i'm doing there in that friendship is i'm and i'm i will be open about this is i'm saying i am there to change your mind right especially if you're a christian right? (laughs) You know, and you're voting Tory and you think that that's a Christian thing to do. I am there to change your mind. When when you're making friends with with people who are actually enacting the policies, I think that's a whole step up. Jesus weeps for Gaza. He sees the pain and suffering of the 1.9 million people who have been forced to leave their homes without access to nutritious food, clean water, decent shelter. He hears the cries of the 25,000 orphaned children. He is with all who mourn the 250 people killed every single day. Christians for Palestine UK is a group of Christians who are calling for an immediate ceasefire in Palestine. We don't pretend to have all the answers, but are united in our prayers, hope and action for equality, peace and justice for all the peoples of the Holy Land. Together, we are organising a Christian presence at the National Marches for Palestine and Local Days of Action, where we've been joined by siblings from Sabil Kairos, Pax Christi, and a whole range of Christian churches. We urge you to join us to act in solidarity with the people of Palestine and call for a permanent ceasefire and just peace. The Very Reverend Canon Richard Sewell, Dean of St George's College in Jerusalem, says... I warmly welcome the newly formed group, Christians for Palestine UK. Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank need to see the solidarity of Christians in the UK and they will be encouraged to see your commitment to stand up for them in their time of terrible suffering. 
to find details of local actions or to join the Christian bloc at a national march. Follow Christians for Palestine UK on Instagram and Facebook or email Christians for Palestine UK at gmail.com. Join us as we call for a ceasefire now. But there, but there's a world of difference, isn't there, between wrongly voting when maybe you, you know, like most people, you're not as weird as we are and into politics. You're kind of vaguely aware that you have some opinions and you vote every four years, five years, whatever it is. Um, there's a world of difference between that and being the person who, you know, and if they're a minister, they're not just voting regularly for it with the knowledge and the research, or whatever. They're often in charge of actively implementing this extremely harmful stuff so yeah there's a difference between voting for a a party and i still think that's that's bad um but there's a difference between that and actually carrying out this stuff something i return to fairly regularly is is this idea that jesus didn't tell us that you know we shouldn't be rude to people that that the height of the gospel is is civility Jesus didn't tell us that we have to be friends with everyone. He told us that we have to love our enemy. You know, he didn't say don't have any enemies. He said, love your enemy. And to me, the best way to love your enemy is to tear them down from, you know, if they're, if they're, if they're you know, some rich Tory is to, to tear them down from that position that they built up for themselves. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, speaking of Christianity being used to baptise the worst possible forms of politics, uh, we're going to hop over the pond to see our American cousins briefly and note some of the other big political news, which is that um, Roe v. Wade is dead. You know, Boris Johnson falling, very good, very happy. Not so sure it's going to be better, but at least we can enjoy it. Roe v. Wade falling is very, very bad. Yep. We are not an American podcast. Uh, there are plenty of good quality American podcasts, political and Christian podcasts that are talking about this stuff. But I did want to talk a little bit about, I guess, what we can learn from over there. And particularly recognising that, you know, the biggest problem, by all accounts, was complacency. You know, there's been a, people have been pushing... Um, since, uh, well, before this point, but, you know, Obama even said that he would codify Roe v. Wade. Obama said a lot of things. Well, yes, exactly. <laughs> but there's been a complacency about, actually, well, it won't happen. Roe v. Wade is is set in stone. And obviously the right in America have worked very hard to um, overturn that and have succeeded by backing the Supreme Court and all that sort of stuff. And I think there's a lesson to be learned there is that we should not be complacent about this sort of stuff. Yes, things are slightly different in the UK and it is codified in law. But even that is still, there is no enshrined right to an abortion in, in the UK. You have to still get two doctors to agree that it's the right thing for you. It has to be for health reasons. So there's no abortion on demand or request. I suppose it's worth acknowledging at this point that I have not offered a justification for what you might have picked up is my fairly strident pro-choice position. Uh, that's because uh, we do not have the time on this particular podcast. But do we, do, we, do we need to, to be honest? It's well it's well trodden ground, you know? Yeah. I, I think there are perhaps some people that might be slightly surprised, possibly more, uh, maybe if there are, I know there are non-Christians listening to this, uh, that, that might be slightly more slightly surprised than the Christian events to discover that uh, we would consider the the argument to be fairly settled from a Christian perspective. Uh, the two things I'd say was whatever your views on the you know sanctity and theology of life and all that sort of thing, restricted abortion leads to more death. But also, and I love upsetting conservative Christians by saying this, uh, it's pretty inarguable that God instructs abortions to happen in the Bible. <laughs> so if it's good enough for God, it's good enough for us. Only time it's mentioned. Exactly. But 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 also a very obvious point to make as well is that. Um, and it ties into this idea that that uh, conservatives, especially religious conservatives who are very anti-abortion, are pro-life until the child is out of the womb, right? Because the, their policies are not pro-life. Their policies are the kinds of policies that lead to people thinking, well, my only option is an abortion. Policies that take money out of your pocket, that make it harder for you to have access to education, to healthcare, to all of these things that make life worth living, you know, putting food on the table, a roof over your head, all these basic things of life are things that 
conservatives, and I mean that small c, you know, whether it be, you know, the conservative party over here or, well, basically any mainstream party over there. And then uh, let's face it at the moment, uh, any mainstream party here as well. (laughs) But, but the point is that these policies lead to more abortions. A very simple way to prevent abortions is to make life worth living for people once they've had a child. So yeah, I think it is worth mentioning a few things about the British context. Obviously, I've already mentioned that you know the law is is not really as strong as it might be. So uh, Northern Ireland's complicated situation. It was decriminalised in Northern Ireland in 2019. Uh, basically, uh, Westminster overruling Storm. Aunt, I always want to call it Stormfront, but that's the Nazi <laughs> thing. Well, well there are, to be to be fair, there are plenty of Nazis in there. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, um, but yes. Uh, um, but yeah, basically Westminster overruled the, the Northern Irish Assembly um, because they were doing nothing as they have for some time, which is a very complicated situation, which we are not going to get into. But whilst it is technically now decriminalised in Northern Ireland, there are no NHS services currently commissioned. So access to abortion in Northern Ireland is all but non-existent apart from to people who can afford to go private. And there's also the situation in Scotland where vast swathes of Scotland do not have any abortion services in reality. And if you go to your doctor needing an abortion, you will get uh, sent on a journey. Um, You know, there are stories that you might have seen during the rounds about Scottish people having to take five-hour train journeys to England to get their um, abortion because it is not there. So the abortion rights are not either secure or really in practice in place in in the UK as it stands and I do not think you know we talked about how far right or extremely right wing the Tory leadership election has been so far no one to my knowledge has made any noises about curtailing abortion rights that hasn't really been talked about it would probably be quite popular with the uh, Tory members but uh, extremely unpopular with the country at large I do not expect a direct attack on abortion rights I suspect it might be done on the quiet we know that Jacob Rees-Mogg is uh, extremely opposed to abortion and I also think is you know some of the uh uh, legal cases going on around trans issues will affect things like abortion rights as they have affected uh, various forms of sexual health for, for young people. Um, there is an attempt to essentially massively change the laws and settled case law around consent and how people can consent in the UK as part of the full frontal attack on trans rights. I am unsure whether uh, effects on sexual health and abortion are intended as, you know, whether whether trans rights are being used as a way of attacking those or whether it's merely that they don't give a shit about those things and that they happen to be collateral damage. I don't know how much it matters in reality, but I think the, the battle for trans rights is going to be the same battle as the battle for sexual health, including abortion rights in this country um so yeah I, I would just encourage people not to be complacent about the situation um it's easy to go oh america what are you up to but um yeah i don't know how many times we've said this on this podcast but just because we are a bit quieter and more polite doesn't mean that the same mad right-wing nonsense isn't also being plotted in this country rob rob Pew Pew, a daring battle cry from the self-appointed new voice of choice. But has the concept of women having choices gone too far? We've assembled this diverse panel of white men in bow ties to talk about abortion. Gentlemen? Tom, this is not just a woman's issue. I'm a man, but if I got pregnant, would I put my life on hold for a child I didn't want? Yes, I would. And I can say that with confidence because I will never have to make that decision, so I'm unbiased. Does this video glamorize abortion? Very possibly, Tom. Millennials today think everything is NBD. NBD, of course, stands for no BD, referring to BD Wong, who teens think is a very big deal. So if something's not BD, it means it's not a big deal. And these days, abortions are not BD. Are abortions even necessary? You know, I heard a theory that if a woman really has an unwanted pregnancy, the body has a way to break the fetus down into gas particles, and then she can just fart it out. Where did you hear this intriguing fart it out theory? I don't remember. Maybe the Bible? Thank you for clarifying. 
Next up. So today's main topic is strikes. As I mentioned at the top, uh, recently the RNT, which is the Union of Rail Workers, have been in strikes over changes to salary structures, changes to uh, pensions, and changes to uh, the safety measures that are taken on the railway. Just a few days ago, ASLEF, which is the Train Drivers Union, so not the General Railway Workers Union, but the actual train drivers, uh, they also voted to strike in a separate but related dispute, again, about paying conditions. There are uh, lots of rumours doing the round about nurses, care workers, uh, including teachers, all considering striking some point this year, possibly. Uh, it, it, it looks not certain, but distinctly plausible that there will be a year of strikes. In fact, the other one was barristers and solicitors striking mainly over uh, legal aid, which has continued to not be uh, increased, so you get paid almost nothing for uh, representing people who cannot afford their own criminal representation. Which means, by the way, and I, and I know people this has happened to, right? People basically leads to lots of people who have absolutely no legal training whatsoever having to represent themselves in court. I know someone this happened to who was an Extinction Rebellion protester. It's happened to a lot of Extinction Rebellion protesters who all had to um, represent themselves in court because they can't get any funding for it. And it's also worth saying that it's it's not that legal aid hasn't been increased. It's that it was quite deliberately cut under the Cameron government and it has never been reinstated. Um, I think it exists for a, a very few, very specific charges but most people now do not qualify for legal aid, and so they have to represent themselves in court, which, of course, leads to people just pleading guilty. And it happened to um, someone someone else I know who, who was um, attacked by police officers for something that his brother did, punched in the face, and they charged him with... Um, various things, including um, criminal damage, I think, for uh, or assault or something, because he bled on their shirt when they punched him. He pled guilty. He pleaded guilty because he was advised to because he couldn't get any decent representation. Right. And that's what this leads to. Right. It's 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 not just that it's injustice. It is a quite deliberate way to criminalize people who are not criminals. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and also the conditions that, you know, solicitors, they have the impression of being very well off, and some of them most certainly are. But uh, the ones that, that do work in criminal courts, for the most part, are not. Um, junior uh, solicitors uh, basically don't earn minimum wage. Um, huge amounts of solicitors went into debt particularly over the COVID pandemic. You know, it is in fact they are having similar issues to the teaching profession in terms of people just upping and leaving because it's not worth it. Worth it because of how poor the paying conditions are. So yeah, that, you know, when you're getting to the point where the flipping solicitors are striking, the you know, in some ways the most. I don't know, default middle class job you could probably think of. When they're on strike, you know, the, there's been all sorts of stuff about the rail networks and nurses, care workers, teeth, you know, so many sectors of society are threatened to go on strike, um, and which is a good time for us to think a little bit about, about strikes. So yeah, I guess the first thing to address is what, what is a strike? And that seems like a really stupid question in some ways, but I think actually, you know, with with union density, the number of people in work in unions being being very low these days, I don't think people necessarily do have the knowledge of of what being on strike actually entails. You know, and I think a lot of people can think that being on strike means being sat at home with your feet up and a cup of tea, uh, not doing your job. And I think the two things that I'd want to say is first and foremost, I think people forget that when you're on strike, you don't get paid. Again, at some levels, if you're a leftist, that probably seems really obvious. But I have met so many people who thought that you still get paid when you're on strike. You lose your pay when you're on strike. Even if you're salaried, they will just dock a day's worth of salary from your from your pay. The second thing is that, you know, whilst there are probably exceptions to this, the general expectation is that if you're on strike... The day that you're on strike, you will be involved in active strike action, whether that just be on the picket line or doing other things. Uh, most people I know that have been on strike reckon that it's the hardest day of work they've done in the year and they don't get paid for it. Yeah, so now we've kind of dispelled some myths. Uh, 
I think it's important to say what happens when when someone is on strike. How how does it come about? What is the what is the process by which you end up being on strike? So what I'm actually going to do is I'm going to read from the government website, okay? Because the rules on um, industrial action are are pretty strict in the UK, and this is because um, they've been eroded and eroded um, over time, um, starting mainly with Margaret Thatcher, who took away a lot of the right to strike in the 80s with the minor strikes. So um, this is what the government website says. Industrial action happens when trade union members are in a dispute with their employers that can't be solved through negotiations. A trade union can only call for industrial action if a majority of its members involved support it in a properly organised postal vote called a ballot. And before you organise a ballot, the union has to decide um, which members are affected by the dispute. So, like, it's not going to ask all of its members to strike. It's only going to ask um, the members that are affected by it to strike. And um, that sort of ties into this whole issue of secondary action. So it's actually what you used to see years ago is that one organisation would go on strike for a particular reason and then uh, another um, trade union um, would strike with them. It's called secondary action. Uh, it's now illegal to take secondary action. You can't go on strike in sympathy with the people who are on strike for a particular reason, um, which is why the particular strikes that are going on right now are very interesting, because you've sort of ended up with a strike happening, the RMT calling a strike, and then a few other um, sectors and, and trade unions saying, well, actually, that sounds like a damn good idea. Maybe we'll go on strike as well. And what they're doing, they're not going on a secondary strike. They are actually seeing the success of the of the strikes that are going on um, and saying, well, things are bad in our industry as well. We're going to strike for these reasons. And so it sort of um, has the potential, at least, to have, have the kind of results that you might have seen in the old days with um, secondary action, um, but it is not in and of itself secondary action. Yeah, and as you rightfully point out, there is a uh, a specific attempt to make it as hard as possible for strikes to take place, um, and the reason for that is quite simple because they're a very effective uh, technique for for winning. Yeah. I suppose what we should probably say is that we're talking about strikes specifically today, and that. Um, Obviously, strikes more broadly are, are part of, of unionism, of being in unions and all that sort of thing. We've touched on union stuff in the past. No doubt we will talk about union stuff again. Today, we're not necessarily going to talk specific, generally about unions. Uh, you can assume that we are going to take a pretty broadly pro-union stance uh, I think that's a you know good rule of thumb. If someone says they're a leftist, they're likely to be pro-union. Well, yes, yes. As, as a general rule, I, I agree with you. Where I think that can fall down a little bit is that a lot of trade unions now, especially like the mainstream trade unions, just aren't very radical at all. A lot of the time, they fail to do what they are there to do. And so, what I would say at this point is that a lot of the successes that we're seeing, um, notwithstanding the the fact that the RMT in particular. Um, is is striking and, and doing a, a pretty good job so far of it. Um, but a lot of the more recent successes we've seen have come from smaller, uh, more radical trade unions. I'm personally in the IWW, um, which has been going for a long, long time. But there are newer trade unions, uh, especially in the UK as well, that are having a lot of successes. Yeah, and obviously, particularly in the gig economy, I know there's been a big movement. Is it the IWGB? Yeah. Who did a lot of work with Liveroo riders and that sort of thing, um, unionising them to essentially take on the way that they were really just being mistreated by Deliveroo and other kind of delivery services of, of the like. Yeah, so there is there is a lot of action g- going on in smaller things. And you're right, a lot of the larger unions... Um, to varying degrees, have tended to shy away from uh, doing more radical things or being more conflict-avoidant, I guess, in their approach and trying to be a bit more conciliatory, 
we are starting to see less and less of that. And obviously there's a bit of a um, a feedback loop there uh, because sometimes they feel like, well, our members aren't going to support anything too radical, so they don't do anything radical. And then that de-radicalizes the members even further and they go, well, our members definitely don't want to do anything too radical. Yeah, that you know, you hear that suggested a lot. The successes that you see with these smaller radical trade unions are successes that are... Um, happening for your average workers. I mean, I was in a union meeting a few years ago where they were talking about successes they had had with some uh, cleaners who were not especially radical people. They were not people who were especially clued into um, the political situation, but they were people who were being screwed over in their workplace and they knew it. And as long as you can get in there and do some good workplace organising and explain to people this is not on, you know it's not on, here's what you can do about it, here are examples of um, where this has been successful before. These radical ideas, these radical ways of doing trade unionism absolutely can and do work and get get results that are significantly better than you would otherwise get if you just, well certainly if you just sat on your, your ass and did nothing, and often if you um, went for a, a less radical approach. There's no point having this self-defeating attitude to unionism. You know, either you're going to be a union or you're not. Um, and for me, I think join a, a, a small radical trade union or, or you know, you could dual card it as well. You can join a small radical one and, and a larger one and fight for some, some actual change, for some actual fairness uh, in your wages. I think one of the things we want to talk today a little bit about is to try and you know, what, what you've offered there, Adam, is a persuasive and, in my opinion, accurate call to action, but one that is, I guess, irreligious in its in its approach. And um, I think what I wanted us to kind of talk a little bit today about was, if you were someone who identifies as a Christian, what resources, kind of biblically, theologically, are there for, for doing things like strikes? Because I certainly... I don't think I've heard unionism mentioned within uh, a sermon at church or, you know, anything within the church program of activities generally. I certainly have never heard someone stand and say, we as a church are going to support these people on strike. Um, That might be my particular church experiences, but I think they are the sorts of places that would say that sort of thing are pretty few and far between. But I think I would want to argue that there's something deeply compatible between uh, a Christian faith and uh, striking, but obviously it depends on the variety of Christian faith. You know, the the big argument against striking is always the disruption it caused. You saw that with the RMT and the rail chaos, the travel network chaos headlines that were, um, you know, in our more right-wing newspapers and also the allegedly left-wing ones sometimes. There is a sort of Christianity that values keeping the peace, not not causing too much trouble. Let's just keep everything running along on an even keel. Uh, and that is potentially a sort of Christianity in which the idea of going on strikes is one in which, uh, well, it's hard to reconcile those two ideas. What What alternative forms of Christianity might we imagine that do allow us to to do things like go on strike and disturb the status quo. Yeah, well, I think there's clearly a lot of um, scriptural support for the idea of collectivization in general. Um, It's more difficult to sort of say trade unionism in and of itself is supported in scripture because it wasn't even a it wasn't a concept um when when the scriptures were being were being written but certainly when you look at the sort of principles um especially in the early church of of collectivization of um supporting each other supporting each other's ability to feed oneself and to have access to all the things you need um, I think that's a principle that's that's fairly clearly expounded in in scripture, especially in Acts. Obviously, you've got condemnation after condemnation of of rich people and and powerful people um, in th- throughout not just the New Testament but throughout the Hebrew Bible as well. And I'm not saying that that's the only thing that's in there, um, but it's certainly something that's fairly consistently. Um, found. It's a thread that you can find all over the place. And it's something that Jesus returns to time and time again. Unionism 
does not exist without the need to collectivize. And in a capitalist society, because unionism obviously can exist in a in a non-capitalist society as well, but in a capitalist society, the reason unionism, trade unionism exists is because you need to collectively bargain, right? You need your voice, your labor power to be strong enough to have a result when you're discussing things with the person who owns the stuff, who owns the means of production. And obviously, you and I would agree that it's wrong that the the means of production are owned by anyone other than the people who are um, working it. But in a capitalist society, you, you have to have a voice that is strong enough to get the things you need to have a decent quality of life. Um, and, and that is a principle that we see in scripture time and time again. Yeah, and I think perhaps there is sometimes a sense that people take a suspicion of power from from Scripture. You know, I, I think of that idea of kenosis, that self-emptying that that Christ he he gives up his his power, his his godliness to some extent to become uh, fully human. Um, I'm sorry if that was a, a, a heresy. I haven't I haven't played the language games for a long time with this one, but uh, you get the point. Um, you know, there's this idea about Christ giving up power. Um, Paul talks a lot about you know making himself the least of all and all this sort of stuff. And I think therefore people are, you know, they hear the idea of union power and strikes being a form of workers demonstrating their power. And maybe there's something, whether it's an active, you know, or I'm not sure about power, that's not what we should be seeking as Christians, or whether there's just something about hearing those things that has just made them suspicious of seeking power. But maybe there's an instinct there to shy away from, you know, strikes as a a demonstration of power. But I think what's important to talk about is that power is not distributed equally. You know, Paul's a Roman citizen and, uh, you know, describes himself as an uber Pharisee of some sort. Um, He is an extremely powerful man. So when he's talking about making himself the least of these, he's coming from a position of being very powerful and therefore having to give up that power. God, however you define that, is very powerful, however you define that. Um, but, you know, when we talk about Christ giving up his his power in some extent in that self-emptying act, that is not analogous to, to workers taking power for themselves. Um, I think it's particularly important to say, you know, Christ gives up that power in order to be part of the mass of humanity. He He chooses specifically to participate and so that giving up of power yes is a giving up of power but it is one in order to find himself in a community and i think that is you know we we would probably draw on that liberation theology idea of where is christ found uh, amongst the people with least power and unions are the way in which these people claim power for themselves um it is not wrong for people to to claim the power that is rightfully theirs the problem is there's a lot of people with a lot of power that isn't rightfully theirs and if we are to draw alongside the the people that christ draws alongside if we are to find christ in uh the poor of the world using the poor in that kind of liberation theology sense then actually things like strikes are how we draw alongside them are how we help them take the power they they deserve um, and I think that's really important is that actually Christianity can sometimes have a pretty rubbish analysis of power. But once you understand that we already exist in a situation of power inequality and that, yes, the powerful have to give up their power, but the powerless aren't being called by Christianity to give up their power. In fact, they're being called to take the power that's been given up by the powerless. Yeah, well, it's, it's you know, we've spoken about it before somewhat, but it's this idea of kenosis, isn't it? You know, Jesus empties himself of his will. And I would say there's a, a, that's essentially synonymous with power at that point. Certainly that's what's happening on the cross. And that's something that he's modeling for us as well. Yes, we have to give up our individual power, but it's that collective power. That's where it goes. The individual power is channeled in, into the collective power. You can't just get rid of it and i think the other thing i want to talk about is when we you know we take the bible as a whole there's a variety of different texts within that in in a quite an extraordinary different variety actually but it is all 
written to, about, or as part of, and in most cases, all three of those, a community, you know, like even the letters that say they're written to one person, uh, you know, you ask any New Testament scholar and they will tell you, no, 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 those are designed to be read out in a community setting. You know, like everything in there assumes that you meet with God alongside other people. And I don't say that to diminish personal religious experience of any description. You know, if you have your personal forms of religious devotion, that's absolutely fine. Uh, but to recognise that that God moves and shows up and communicates in, in communities and in groups and, and not to individuals. Um, and I think individualization is a big problem. You know, if, if you only can conceive of things individually, things like strikes don't necessarily make sense on an individual level. Um, you know, it's something we haven't really talked about. But a thing about a strike is that if you are that classic economic rational person, you you don't go on strike. You take the gains that people going on strike have won you, but you don't miss your day's pay and you don't piss off your bosses. That that that's the rational thing to do is to is to not be on strike. But if everyone did that, then the, they wouldn't. No one would win from the strikes. So for something like strikes, there is a sense that you put aside your individualism and your individual desires to work together for for the good of a community at large and to take power for yourselves because you want to take power for the whole community. And I think there's something particularly uh, Christian about the idea that there are people who won't strike and they will feel the benefits of strikes and the concessions that they win. You know, what what's more Christian than giving up some of yourself for others, right? It might not be giving up your life for others, but um, it's that sort of thing, right? You are You are taking the hit on behalf of other people who may have chosen not to get the hit themselves but they can still feel the benefit that that feels very deeply christian not exclusively christian but just as a deep synchronicity with with christian faith in that yeah i don't have anything to uh, add to that i agree When we are looking at at strikes, we can start to see actually that to support strikes, to be on strike, it is something that is is Christian. And yet, right now, I don't think we see. You know, there are forms of Christianity in America and and, and you know lots of other places in the world that are quite explicitly pro-union. That you know are, are part of union struggle and that is not something we see very much of in the uk there is a nascent movement in the church of england uh of kind of unionizing uh, vicars and priests and whatnot um but that's still quite early days and there's not necessarily a sense that that's cohering into a wider pro-union form of christianity um but if you were someone who maybe has some sway in your church have you got any thoughts, Adam, about how people might, or what things people might be asking their churches to be doing to uh, support some of the strikes that are going to be continuing to happen? Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? Because it's um, it feels at the moment, you know, even even when we consider that the history of of trade unionism and its its roots in in well, certainly in the less radical trade unions, its roots in uh, especially sort of Methodism and and so on. It feels like we're a million miles away from that, if I'm honest. Like there are, there are signs of signs of hope. I mean, um, I, I was reading a uh, Church Times article from earlier this year that says that there are more Church of England priests joining trade unions than there have been certainly since they started recording such things, but there's a big question as to how much of that is is actually priests being you know more radical and, and really engaging with this kind of thing and how much of it is that the conditions um of of working in the church of england are gradually not uh well they're not always as 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 good as they might be if you're say a stipendiary minister with a single parish right <laughs> um uh so i think i think that's a reason but Either way, it does feel like there are 
it, it that it is still very much baby steps at the moment. I think the first thing is that we need to be having these conversations like what we're having here in church. And so if we can organize something uh, around those conversations to happen in church, um, that's a good start. I think if there's a picket line near where you are, then I think a good thing to do might be to talk to, even if there are just a few people in your church who are sympathetic to this kind of thing, um, it might be a good thing to go and show your support actually at the picket line. And I think being proactive about this and actually just joining uh, a union is and 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 being an active part of that union if if you can be and and talking about that kind of thing is is a good place to start in church but it i don't know about you but it really does feel like there are we're not as far along the line these days as we perhaps once were yeah i mean i don't necessarily have i don't know historical knowledge or understanding to to comment comparatively we're certainly a long way from where i'd like us to be I think you're right that actually it probably starts with finding small groups of like-minded people. As an individual, you can support unions, turn up, to, turn up the pickets and stuff. There is something potentially quite powerful if you can turn up organisationally as a church yes. compared to just turning up individually. Hopefully with sandwiches and stuff, that would be nice, bring some grub. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, practically you know, turning up to to lend your voice uh, rhetorically and kind of physically and, you know, to be, to be shown to be there is useful, but um, it's also useful to, to, yeah, bring sandwiches and yeah, do, do grunt work. Again, again, these people are not being paid. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, if, if, you know, there are strike funds that you can donate to, you know, there are, there are valuable things to be doing. So I don't want to, if you are in a place, which I think the vast majority of us are, where turning up as a church organisationally on a picket line is, uh, simply out of the question. I don't want people to feel discouraged. There is plenty of things people can do as individuals to be part of it. But um, yeah, I, I think any steps we can take towards getting to a point where there are at least some churches about that that will turn up to picket lines. I'm inherently suspicious of the use of dog collars and the like. One of the places that I do think they have potential value, even if I still am ultimately not a big fan, there's something about having a, a someone on a picket line in a dog collar. Either it's a sex worker strike and the strippers have turned up, or uh, <laughs> there is a sense that a uh, a religious person, religious community, or whatever has has. I don't know. I don't want to say given legitimacy, but there's there's something striking about that image, isn't there? Um, there is something that matters. Again, I don't want to make it all about the look of the thing. You know, actually. Do not think for a second that that there is anything more valuable than just turning up and doing the practical work. That's the most important stuff. But if we can get to a point where there is, you know, a the ability to have that physical visual reminder of that, and also, you know, churches are spaces where you can a lot of the time really effectively organise large groups of people to get stuff done, and if that can be organised towards supporting strikes that would be you know an amazingly effective thing that is not going to happen overnight but if you can work towards that then i would encourage you to do so to the best of your abilities yeah and i think you know i've been in churches where that would be a lot more easy where there are a lot of radical people there who who would be up for for doing that I've also been in churches where that that's not going to happen anytime soon. And I think, you know, in those kinds of churches, I know we sort of joke about the the whole kind of whole thoughts and prayers kind of thing, but don't underestimate the importance of praying in a in in that kind of space for the picketers, for those on strike, for them to um get fair wages and, and all that kind of thing. Because when you're praying for that, in the actual prayers in a, in a church where that's not really on the agenda, um, what you're doing at that point is you're starting to get people who are there thinking about it. A prayer is a really good way to do that because nobody can jump up and say, how dare you <laughs> pray for that? In those kinds of churches, that's that's a, you know not a bad thing to do either. Yeah, 100%. I think there's something uh, not to get completely uh, 
bogged down in Marxist theory, mainly because I don't have the knowledge to do so. But um, churches are, for better and for worse, part of what you might call that superstructure that has a relationship to the the economic base. Um, if, if those words don't mean anything to you, don't worry. But the point is that there is a relationship between the actual material lived reality of the lives we lead and the kind of rhetorical and ideological structures that govern our lives and order our thoughts and stuff. Uh, the church is part of the structures that govern our, our lives and order our thoughts and um, if we are able to create space within those to move things to a, uh, a leftward direction or at least open space for people to think about them within those, that does have in the long term real world impacts it's not enough but it isn't nothing either um so yeah i I totally agree that um whatever you can do even as you say if it is it's hard for people to get upset about you praying for people to have fair wages um even though we all know what you mean it is generally a bad look to say actually people should have unfair wages I, i think it's really important as well when we're talking about um praying in that context of, of a church that um you know where that kind of thing isn't really on on the cards at all it's really important that you are steadfast in that's a good christian word isn't it yeah, <laughs> yeah that is so christian <laughs> steadfast you ever heard an atheist call ask for something to be steadfast yeah. absolutely not no <laughs> well i'm gonna go with it i'm gonna go with it we are christians on this podcast believe it or not yeah, I'm sure people think we're probably not, to be fair, but yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, f- fundamentalists, certainly. <laughs> um, but um, but no, it is it is important that you are steadfast in that, and not just, not just in your praying for that, but what I mean is, you know, in the conversations that could be birthed from that. Because it's very tempting sometimes to to have those conversations where you've prayed prayed that kind of prayer, and someone comes up to you, and they clearly don't agree with you, uh, maybe they agree with you up to a point or something, and they may even think that you, you're going to agree with them on everything that they say. And you can end up having a conversation where you're put into a position where you're agreeing with the most milk toast uh, solutions to these things. When actually, what you should be saying at that point is, you know, respectfully, um, well, I, I personally would see it this way. You know, that is an opportunity for us to to expound, to gently expound our more radical uh, and uh, godly, I'm going to say, um, solutions to these things. So be very careful um, about those conversations that are birthed from that. Um, have them. That's really important and good. Um, but don't let that conversation uh, water down your approach to it. The only way people are going to change their minds on these things, are going to be exposed to these things, is by having conversations where we, we're not just willing to agree with anything someone says in order to um, keep the peace or not seem like we're, you know, saying something outlandish. Yeah, absolutely. And that advice comes from two of the most conflict-avoidant men on this earth. So <laughs> You know it comes from a place of uh, of lived experience. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. When Adam said about, like, don't just agree timidly with milk toast opinions, I was like, oh, you mean like I've been doing my entire yeah, life in yeah. church? Okay, yeah. <laughs> That's why we do this podcast, right? Because, like, it's the only way people can actually know what we think. Yeah, yeah. I think most people who've met me a few times, like... Probably like Ben. No, I think he's interested in politics at all. I've never, never heard him express opinions on that. I, uh, I don't have that luxury anymore, sadly. Yeah, I can imagine that that's harder for, particularly obviously for me doing the job where I am. Um, have to be at least somewhat apolitical. Um, yeah, that's that's the glorious thing about about training for for ministry. Like the the good thing about being a priest is that. Um, actually, even though it seems from the outside that there's a this big structure that you know you can't do everything you want, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, there's actually a lot of um, freedom in what you you can say and do in terms of, for example, union organising, which is which is which is great. So yes, people go out and uh, create a uh, union friendly church. Amen. I want this podcast to be like, is it who is it who is it is it the Ramones? Where they say about a hundred people saw them live, but each and every one of them went and started a band. It's not the Ramones, can't remember who it is. But I want uh, this podcast to be almost no one listened to it, but every single one person that did went and created a union church or made their church a union church. Uh, so yeah, crack on with that. 
Um, I think that is probably all we have time for today. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Uh, full solidarity if you are someone who is on strike or is uh, pushing the union to go on strike or doing the organisational work to create a union that might be open to striking. Uh, yes, full solidarity as always to all of you. You can find this podcast on all the usual podcast feedy places. Uh, we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash bread and rosaries. We are at Twitter at bread underscore rosaries. And you can email us breadandrosaries at gmail.com. Uh, do get in touch because uh, we like to hear from people, feedback, thoughts, questions, whatever. We we just really like hearing from people, knowing that people out there are listening and hearing what we're saying is uh, quite a treat for us. Um, we're also uh, considering uh, whether we should just have a permanent end song. So if you have any proposals for what our outro tune should be, uh, this is your opportunity to get in there. Adam, where in the world can people find you? You can find me at commie, X-I-A-N. Cool. Thank you very much, everyone. We hope that you're having a lovely time and not melting too much in the heat. It's probably going to be hot by the time this comes out, but uh, I'm very sweaty. And we will see you next time. See you later. Thanks, Adam. Bye.